So hi, it's Mike Wheeler with Agility at Work and with my co-partner in this, Kim Leary. Kim, how are you doing? Hey, Mike. Good to be with you, as always. Particularly today, because it took a while to get uh, on Erin Egan's schedule. She is very, very busy at Amazon. She has an interesting career in business development. She was previously at Microsoft way, way back when. She was at Airbus and some other companies as well. And she is such an innovative thinker. She always brings something to the conversation. I'm I'm sure there's going to be a new anecdote or a new concept or principle I'm going to learn and our um, listeners are going to learn as well from her. So let's welcome Erin onto the show. I love the unknown. I love the ambiguity. I like, you know, having to read people and just the, the twists and turns that you go through in the negotiation and trying to find a path where you get what you want, but you also help the other side to get what they want. And I find that just endlessly fascinating. Well, Erin, I think, you know, the very things that you appreciate and love about negotiation are the things that make many people, you know, take a step back. Maybe you could help us to get a sense of what you see and hear in that ambiguity that really compels you? Sure. I think what I see are possibilities that other people don't see. It's like you have a landscape where you can pull different ideas, different perspectives, and try to craft a new solution and reframe a situation. And that's the piece that I find both challenging and uh, really intriguing and love to try to do it. You know, I, I definitely don't always succeed. I love going off after lawn shots and, you know, the probability of success on those are not necessarily high. Uh, so I have many failures as well, but it's a lot of fun going after it and trying. You know, Erin, the way you talk about uh, the negotiation is actually very reminiscent of the way many clinicians feel about getting to know someone in a psychotherapy or counseling context, where they're trying to figure out what's the story. They're trying to figure out how they can be helpful, and they're intrigued by the parts of the story that don't make sense. So I know you're not a psychologist and negotiation isn't therapy by any means, but I just wanted to to highlight that kind of interest in people and their stories and the question marks that they bring to the table. So I'd love to hear what, uh, what Erin feels has kind of shaped her ability to welcome the ambiguity and to be curious about the questions. You know, I've thought about that and I actually think Part of it could be that I have a learning disability. They call it now a learning difference. And I'm dyslexic. And growing up, learning, for example, it was just never a direct process for me. You know, I half the time I didn't know what the teacher was talking about. And so I had to develop the capacity to read a room to try and understand what was going on using all sorts of different types of of sensory, what I could see, what I could hear, and noticing things. And that's how I would put things together often and learn. 
And at the time, it felt like such a disadvantage. But now, um, you know, professionally, I find it to be quite an advantage, for example. I just grew up trying to read people. And then when I'm at a negotiating table or, you know, just meeting people for the first time, I just pick up all sorts of cues, which I log in the back of my head. And then as I'm developing the relationship and the negotiation is progressing, that information is often very helpful to me. There's usually a moment, just like the one you described in your life, where out of a challenge or out of something that makes one distinctive, you have to develop new skills. You have to figure out how you're going to kind of work with what you've got. And it can be a, a tremendous opportunity for people to develop the kind of acute talent like you just described. You told me a story once about um, trying to have access to hallways at the business school so that you could walk yeah. uh, while you read. Could you tell that story? Would you mind sharing that or not? Sure. So I uh, discovered that the way I retained the most information was actually pacing up and down and reading out loud. I was requesting a room at the business school to be able to do that. And at the business school, they informed me that space was very limited and that there was you know, no way they could possibly accommodate that. Um, and asked me why I could not just study in my apartment or dorm room. And I said, well, why does anybody go to a library? You know, my dorm room is rather distracting and I need a separate place to study. They didn't buy that. And so I actually went to Harvard University and I made my case and they said, this is the strangest request we have ever received. No one has asked us for a separate room to pace up and down and read out loud. And I mean, my whole life has just been an experience of doing things people haven't done before. So that really didn't faze me. I said, well, this is what I really need. I would, you know, really appreciate it if, if you would consider it because you do give a library to all your students, which is not usable for me based on how I read. And they decided to grant it to me and they overruled the business school. And I had a dorm room uh, for two years at HBS to read out loud and pace up and down. And uh, it worked out just fine. When you asked me, you know, that I, I shared that I'm dyslexic and I have a learning difference. And um, one thing that I did uh, in business school is I was in finance. I was in the first year finance class. And for someone who's dyslexic, learning finance via the case method is uh, an interesting experience. And mm -hmm. I remember sitting in the class you know, with like 90 other students and thinking, you know, he's cold calling people. And the way I think is just not how other people think. And so he'll go down a path. And even though I've read the case and done the homework, I'm not tracking. And I'm sitting here watching him cold call people. And I'm thinking, this is just not going to work. And I thought, what do I do? And so in a true way of negotiating, I thought, well, why is he cold calling people? He's cold calling people because he wants to make sure we did the homework and he wants to make sure we learn the concepts and we graduate, you know, with a basic knowledge of finance. And I said, I can guarantee him those things. 
And so I booked time in his office hours and I said, hi, you have no idea who I am. I'm one of your new students. And I said, I'm dyslexic. And I said, this cold calling thing is just really not going to work. This is what I propose. I promise you I'm going to do all the homework and I promise you I'm going to read everything. If I know the answer, I'm going to raise my hand and you call on me. If I don't raise my hand, don't. I said, and this is going to work out really well for everybody because <laughs> it won't, we won't be embarrassed. You're not going to cold call me and I'm not going to have any idea. And he looked at me like so perplexed because it was basically the inverse of a cold call. And he went along with it and it went beautifully. And I actually did quite well in finance. And then the craziest part of this story is I learned like 10 years later, he did it with a bunch of other students after that. The, the model works so well. So at any rate, that's, that's sort of a way of reframing a situation and trying to ensure that I meet the expectations of the other person while using a slightly different model that works better for everyone. Well, you know, Erin, it's also a kind of leadership, isn't it? A kind of adaptive leadership on behalf of a collective challenge of students who, uh, where the cold calling method just doesn't work to their advantage. You right. really help to change that narrative and open up possibility for a whole bunch of folks. So Aaron, I know that you have spectacular radar, social radar for reading a room, and this showed up early in your career. As I recall, one of your early jobs was not in the U.S., but was in France with Airbus. Is that correct? Yes, it was. Good memory, Mike. Uh, how old were you at that time? Oh, I was in my early 20s. You were in your early 20s, but you were going to very, very big deals, part of negotiation teams where uh, Airbus makes, uh, obviously, uh, airplanes and so forth, but needs to get equipment from others. What was your job at those meetings? Well, I worked for the head of strategy, which in and of itself is an interesting story how I ended up getting there, but that was my role. And my job was to work with the engine manufacturers and develop a strategy for, you know, how we should work with the engine manufacturers for what they call clean sheet aircraft, brand new aircraft. And because my boss was the head of strategy, he was always meeting with very senior people. And I don't know what happened, but I think he just brought me along once. And after the meeting, you know, I had the unique position of I wasn't expected to talk or engage. Like I was just there with him, like supporting him, but I was observing, you know, everything that was going on. And then I remember after that meeting, we were just walking back to his office and I just proceeded to debrief him on everything I saw, all of the interactions when I thought what they were saying was accurate. And when I thought what they were saying was not accurate and why, and then my analysis of their actual position, irrespective of the way they presented it. And after that, he brought me to every single one of his meetings. And then I imagine he did. <laughs> continued, we continued on like that. And the, the other companies, they would catch on, you know, they would, I don't know if I ever told you this, Mike, they would sit next to me 
So, you know, the, the other company, they might have one person from, you know, on each side of me sitting next to me. I, they were very curious what I was writing in my notebook. You know, um, I then stopped writing things in my notebook and I would just, you know, debrief him after. It's interesting. I think important, too, Kim, that she speaks about the interactions among team members. You know, there's all this business of uh, reading body language and, and so forth. It's one thing to look at an individual, but to see an individual interacting in a supportive or skeptical way with somebody else, that that's information that can be very important. Indeed. And I think it's so interesting, Aaron, that you, uh, as you were describing it, that your job was just to watch, to, to soak in those exchanges. Because I think it's so hard to be in the midst of the action and reflecting, even though that's what we, of course, need to do most of the time. What, what a, a, an advantage, really, to just be free to take that in. But that's not where you are now, right? I mean, you have to do both in most of your work. Is that right, right Aaron? You're, you're moving the meeting along uh, and you're dealing with the substance of it. And uh, apparently you're also reading the room. Yes, there's a group of us working. I'm not just by myself. Now, what about internal negotiation? Uh, I know you've told me some uh, negotiation stories uh, <laughs> that the toughest negotiations are often with your own colleagues. Uh, can you give an example of maybe some case where you had to get something done yesterday and you're dealing with people from very different functions in the company? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, my thinking often is that your hardest negotiations are the internal negotiations and, and sorting out what your company's position is and, and what they truly you know, want to do in their true perspective. And then, of course, as you move through a negotiation, you're shifting positions or offering alternative views, and then you have to get approval internally. Uh, I think generally what I have found is the most important thing is to ensure everyone is aligned on the ultimate goal, the North Star, the vision. Everyone on the team, you mean? Yes, everyone on the team, everyone internally because you'll have many stakeholders internally. It's not even just the team that's negotiating the deal. Um, you need to go back and get approvals. And as long as you're focused on that highest order goal and you're sure that the direction you're taking this deal is, is attributing to that, you will generally get support. You have to continually communicate how that attributes to that broader goal. But I think where a lot of times people fall down is, you know, they have a deal to do and they're quite narrowly focused on that deal and only that deal and not how it necessarily connects to much broader goals. And if you step back and take that broader lens and view, it helps you to get internal alignment. And sometimes, you know, you also just have to say peace that you don't agree with somebody and you have to just be willing to go to bat for what you believe in. And sometimes you'll win and sometimes you'll lose, but always trying to get consensus does not necessarily work either. Kim, are there aspects of adaptive leadership in that or am I stretching it? There are. I think what Aaron describes about being able to read the room, of being able to think about where are people in agreement with one another? Where are they facing the same North Star? And where are they struggling internally 
or within their team uh, is absolutely crucial to figuring out who is taking what perspective on the collective challenge. So absolutely. You've coined some terms which I've now used. I'm speaking uh, to Aaron here. Deal fatigue. I know when you've represented other companies uh, trying to acquire technology or form a partnership or whatever, you sometimes get frustrated when others feel deal fatigue. What what do you mean by that? You know, these deals, they they always go on so much longer than you think they will. And you just start to get kind of exhausted and frustrated, like negotiating, you know, similar terms, or you think you're almost done. And then lo and behold, you know, something pops up at the very end. Um, and I think people have a tendency to then just want to close the deal and, and kind of forget like why they're doing the deal, the elements that are important to them and have the mindset that this is a marathon. Every deal is a marathon. Big deals are at least important deals and that you need, you need to stick it out and you need to hold your ground. And you need to be open as well because they may bring up a point that is a very good point. And to just shut it down because it's coming at the last minute isn't, isn't a fair approach. That's also why I think, um, you know, I, I love negotiating for used cars. And like, you, sh you know, you should always go at the end of the day, at the end of the month, because the dealers are fatigued, you know, they've got to hit their quotas. And then that is to your benefit, actually, I think. Have you ever traded something in for a car, Erin? When I graduated from uh, Harvard Business School, I did not have very much money. I was very much in debt and I needed a car. I had I'd been using my bike in Boston for many years. And uh, I was, you know, I'd been negotiating for this car. It was a used Honda Civic. Uh, and we were just at like a $300 impasse. I think it was three or $200. And, you know, I just, I honestly just couldn't really afford more. And then I knew there was going to be taxes. And, and, and this is sort of when I talk about like the broader goal, I was thinking, how do I solve this? He had at the very beginning of the negotiation, and this is why I think memory is important too, like just remembering things that happen even at the very beginning of conversations. He had said, do you have a trade-in? And I jokingly said, no, it's just, you know, I have a bike. And then I started thinking about that. And I thought, well, I have a bike. And even though my bike, yes, I did buy it used and it's probably worth like nothing. I could position, I mean, it, it works. It, it could be worth $300. So I called him up because I knew at the end of a negotiation, you never want to do it in person. And I said, look, you know, we're just at this $300 impasse and I don't know how to solve it other than I do have my bike, which is definitely worth $300. And I would be more than happy to trade it in. And then we have a deal. And there was just silence. And I said, you know what? You don't have to respond now. Think about it. Talk to your manager. If it's something you feel like could work for you, just call me back. And I don't know, maybe like three hours later, I get a phone call and he said, we'll do it. And I said, great. And so I show up at the car dealership with my bike 
and I roll the bike in and I mean, I didn't know what was going to go on. And he was actually really excited about the bike. He wanted to see the bike. And then, you know, we go through the process and my favorite moment was when, you know, they pass you on to the people that take the trade-ins. And this woman looks at me and they had this form, you know, like what's the mileage? What year did you buy the vehicle? And she's like, I have no idea how you did this. We have never done this before. I don't even know what to put on this form. She's like, just make it up. It's fine. And um, at any rate, but you know, this is how interesting things happen. You know what they did with that bike? The owner of the dealership, I guess, is rewards to his salespeople every month has like a little, uh, I don't know, raffle or something. And they raffled away the bike. And my salesperson was so excited because he was hoping he would get the bike. I'm going back a couple of paragraphs. Uh, we're speaking, not uh, reading here. But did you say something about you actually liked closing that deal by the phone as opposed to being in person? What was that about? Yeah, sure. Um, I think when you get close to uh, closing out deals, there's just so much emotion. You're very invested in it. And there is like going back to that concept of deal fatigue. It's like you just want it to be over. And that's not that mentality is not in your best interest. And so what I try to do is create environments that encourage me to do things that don't, you know, make me just want to close the deal. So I always finish negotiations over the phone, um, by emails. Uh, so it's less personal um, because I think it, it allows one to move back into a more neutral place, which is the best place to be when you're logically trying to move through a deal. Kim, we've talked about negotiation. We've also talked about uh, leadership. Uh, where do you see the line between the, the two? What, what I've been thinking about in the back of my mind as Aaron has been speaking has been um, a couple things. One is that as we're trying to move big agendas forward, you know, we're not all looking in the same direction. And there are strong feelings. There are ideological differences. And you're giving us a perspective, Aaron, on how we can think through um, a set of steps of engaging people person to person. Uh, and of the delight that comes when we can touch another person's sort of soul or, or make, their, make them laugh a little bit uh, with the bicycle example. And I'm also thinking about how critical the, the stance you described of, of watching and listening is for some of the equity work that's so um, in the news these days um, as, uh, as we think about uh, reformatting um, our usual practices to make sure that they're more equitable, to have somebody uh, be able to listen in and be able to catch us in the act of being ourselves, but gently draw our attention hmm. to that can be incredibly helpful. Well, it's interesting that uh, uh, I have heard Ronnie Heifetz of the Kennedy School uh, speak on a number of occasions. Uh, you've taken a course from him, Aaron. You've worked uh, with him as a colleague Kim, uh, it's interesting. 
I hear an Aaron a kind of a disruptive uh, nature, and I mean in a very positive sense, uh, not necessarily accepting the game as as given. We've covered a lot of ground. Um, the clock has run just awfully fast. Uh, I hope we can get Aaron back for a, another episode. But any final comments or, or questions for Aaron, Kim? Just uh, appreciation, Aaron, for sharing your story and also uh, helping us to think about how incredibly important it is to, to be creative uh, in negotiation, in leadership, in trying to solve public problems. I second that uh, heartily. Uh, great for you to, to join us, Aaron, and hope to have you back very, very soon. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be with both of you, and thank you for having me. So, Kim, you and I both know uh, Aaron. Uh, there is not a time I've ever had a conversation with her where I haven't learned something new. And one of the great pleasures of teaching dedicated and imaginative students is that the uh, the teaching is a two-way street. What was your reaction? Oh, absolutely, Mike. Uh, just what a, a thrilling set of reflections that she shared with us about uh, negotiation, about leadership, about uh, upsetting people's expectations, truly disruptive innovation in the classroom and negotiation. Uh, what a pleasure just to hear her uh, teach us uh, a lot, actually. Well, I have a hunch that our listeners are going to share the notion that uh, we'll give the teacher, and I have no disrespect to the two of us, the teacher, in this case, Erin, uh, for her great, uh, her great class. So uh, I hope we can get her back at some point. Um, Kim, I'm on to other things today, as you are as well, but uh, as always, great to see you. Great to see you, Mike. Take care.